This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Book Network podcast on South Asian Studies. I am Anubha Anushri, a doctorate from the Department of History, Stanford University, and a lecturer at the college program at Stanford Introductory Studies. I'm delighted to have Nikhil Menon for the podcast today. Nikhil is an assistant professor at the Department of History, University of Notre Dame. Today, we will be in conversation with Nikhil about his recent monograph, Planning Democracy, Modern India's Quest for Development, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022 and was the recipient of the Joseph Devlu Elder Prize in the Indian Social Sciences by the American Institute of India Studies. Congratulations, Nikhil, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Anubha, and thank you so much for uh, having me on. It's a real pleasure to have this conversation. Great. Uh, So to start us off, could you summarize what your book is about and also tell us briefly how you came to research this topic? Yeah, sure. So uh, my book is about, I mean, what I think of as one of the sort of great experiments or projects of the 20th century, how India tries to combine Soviet-inspired socialistic five-year plans on the one hand and Western liberal democracy on the other uh, especially during the Cold War, which pits these two ideas as both you know, institutionally incompatible, but also intellectually incompatible. And so my book tries to explore how planning became so central to the story of modern India, and it uses planning as a lens through which to try to understand the nature of the Indian state after independence. Uh, we know that planning dominated public life in early independent India, in its economy, of course, but also in its politics and civic life, that the five-year plans come to almost mark an alternative, alternative national calendar. But my book tries to look beyond the debates about whether you know the five-year plan succeeded or failed, something that we know a lot more about. Uh, but instead of this economic performance, I'll try to look at how planning shaped the Indian state and the nature of its democracy. And the way it does it is by exploring the ways in which the post-colonial state establishes both its data capacity and its ability to govern govern the economy through statistics and computers. Um, But equally, and the second half of the book uh, is about about and tries to explain the way in which uh, the ideology of democratic planning came about. This this phrase, democratic planning, was very popular in post-independent India. uh, And it looks at the plethora of ways in which the state tries to convey this ideology of democratic planning to its citizens. Um, I mean, coming to to how I came to research this topic, um, 
I mean, uh, this book is, of course, based on the research I did for my PhD. Uh, and when I applied for my PhD, I, I applied uh, to graduate school to work on a very different subject, having worked on a very different topic on the labor history of South India for my MPhil at JNU. But once I joined my PhD program, I, I think that the combination of both being in a new intellectual environment, but also some exhaustion with what I've been working on led me to maybe to sort of look towards new pastures. And, and I became increasingly drawn to this idea of studying how India made its way after independence. Uh, because at the time when I was looking, uh, when I'd begun my PhD in 2011, there weren't that many monographs or books on post-independent India. Uh, and planning was a subject that I'd, you know, of course, growing up, read about in newspapers or watched on news shows, you know, growing up in the 1990s. Planning, of course, was very unfashionable. But when I started looking into the subject, I, I realized that, that, believe it or not, planning was very fashionable at a time in India. And I want to uncover this history of how something uh, like planning had become so mainstream in Indian policy, uh, so desirable to a range of political parties and so central to the story of modern India, not just in its economy, but also bleeding into spheres that I didn't expect to find it in, like in popular culture. Uh, and I was also fortunate, of course, to be in an environment um, uh, at it, at the university where I had academic mentors like you know, Grant Kyan Prakash and Bhavani Raman, who were very encouraging of this, and with a group of students um, who were in cohorts either in mine or above or, or, or below mine, who had also in, independently interests in independent India. Uh, Rotam Geva, Radha Kumar, Rohit Day, Vinay Sitapati, Rohan Mukherjee, all of them have had their books also come out you know, before mine on their own subjects on independent India. And I think being a part of um, this cohort of people um, provided a sort of camaraderie uh, and a feeling like, you know, maybe it can be done. That's fantastic and a very inspiring story indeed to follow. Um, since we are deep diving into your work, uh, you describe planning in post-independent India and quite appositely, appositely may I add, as an I quote, arranged marriage between Soviet-inspired economic planning and Western-style liberal democracy, unquote. Could you elaborate on what you mean by that? Sure. I mean, uh, the reason I use this metaphor of an arranged marriage is because during the time of the Cold War uh, and the superpower competition between the Soviet Union and the United States, of course, planning and democracy, as I, as I mentioned earlier, was seen to be fundamentally incompatible. They didn't appear to have any natural inclination or love for each other. And so India's choice to put these two together was an experiment, a kind of leap of faith by the Indian state, which in my metaphor uh, sort of represents the parents doing the arranging of the marriage between these two. Uh, I, I was interested in writing a history of India that tried to place India within a transnational context and tried to convey the global stakes of India's post-colonial experiment with planning. And I wanted to do it by conveying the Cold War and global history more broadly as multipolar, not just divided between the superpower blocks or the West and the rest, as it were. But it was important to me to be able to show the ways in which Indian history has had these international effects, not just the other way around. So, for example, in, in my book, I go into how some of the social scientific techniques that were first pioneered in Calcutta at the Indian Statistical Institute become a part of international development knowledge and expertise and that now they come to be used uh, by the World Bank and, and the UN in more than 100 countries today. And, and so, so this, this international aspect uh, of this arranged marriage was, was, was quite important. 
Uh, thank you for the response, Nikhil. That's a great segue to my next question. Uh, as you note in your chapter called uh, Chasing Computers, your book fills in a very critical gap on the history of computing and technology in India. What is fascinating about this chapter is not just the largely forgotten cast of its characters, uh, P.C. Mahalanobish, Ash- Ashok Mitra, and the Indian Statistical Institute, to name a few. But you also foreground the historical context of the Cold War as central to the technocratic history of India. Could you please tell us briefly about the connections between the history of planning and the emergence of computers in India during the Cold War decades? Yeah, I mean, to put it quite simply, India owes its very first computers to the era of centrally planning the economy. Uh, the first two computers I, I discovered, uh, that the first two digital computers that were brought to India, and this was in the 1950s, uh, were brought to India in order to help calculate the data from the National Sample Survey for the purposes of the Planning Commission. Uh, and and this, was a, uh, this was something that when I found uh, in the archives, it was a story that just had so much drama inherent in it. Uh, and I hope that you know, I was able to capture some of it uh, in, in the way that I put it down. Uh, and I found that these these episodes really utterly fascinating. I mean, just to give you a flavor of it, let me try to recount the the, the an anecdote that I, that I opened this chapter with on an individual named uh, Morton Nadler, who you, you who you mentioned. Uh, so Morton Nadler is this young American sort of you know young American man in his early twenties in in Brooklyn, New York, uh, and somebody who is in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties a you know a young socialist. And because of his views, he's looked at with suspicion uh, by his employers in America and by the American army. Uh, and Morton Nadler is a young radio engineer. And so his work puts him in a position where intelligence authorities in America see him as being suspicious and his social sympathies make him uh, make him a suspect in their eyes. And with this dream of wanting to work towards actually existing socialism, he tells his parents that he's going to the Sorbonne to do a PhD in Paris, but instead he makes his way to Prague in Czechoslovakia to work for uh, the, sort of the, the government there, which of course controlled as part of the Soviet Union. Um, and while in in Prague, he sort of his life becomes like he says, uh, it begins to approximate that of a John le Carre spy because his he is uh, tailed by both the intelligence services uh, of the Czechoslovak authorities. But also by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, who think that he has he has that he's now a traitor, uh, and so the Czechoslovak they think that he might be uh, a double agent, somebody who's posing as a convert to socialism, but is actually working for American interests. And to his motherland, the United States, he's just seen as a traitor. And uh, after a few years of like trying to figure out what to do about this, he finally ends up going to. Uh, he hears about an escape route, and the escape route is to go to a country that's not aligned. Uh, and the country that he makes his way to eventually is India, and he comes to India to work on its first computers. And so I link that story to um, to the more institutional story of how India got its first computers, which was and it was a campaign that was spearheaded by uh, P.C. Mahalanobis, who was, of course, a, a physicist turned statistician turned economic planner, and the institute at which he was based, the Indian Statistical Institute, these two were in some ways put in charge by the Indian government to bring India its first computers. Uh, and I look at how the stories of people like Martin Nadler intersect with that of the Indian Statistical Institute. And I look into how both uh, 
Mahalanobis and the Institute, um, you know, um, ha- have individuals traveling across the, the eastern coast of America, across Harvard, Princeton, University of Pennsylvania, where these new, uh, this new technology, a sort of revolutionary new technology, is being is being pioneered in the in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Uh, and I, I, I sort of tried to recount the, the different troubles with which the, that the Indian government had to face in order to bring just one computer. Of course, a one computer at the time occupied an entire room and had less calculating power than the machines that we carry around in our pockets today. But they cost up to a million dollars. And that was something that was unaffordable for a country as poor as India. And so I look at the stories of you know how India brought these first computers from Britain how um, uh, it was a lot, a lot of India bringing the second computer to India from the Soviet Union uh, was up to chance and, uh, and the right person being at the right place at the right time, um, but also about some of the structural impediments to bringing these, these enormously expensive and, and kind of dizzyingly uh, these machines of sort of the dreamlike possibilities to India. And one of the structural impediments was the Cold War itself. And the person spearheading the campaign, Mahalanobis, was seen in America by the State Department as being a communist. And so I found that in, in declassified uh, US uh, State Department documents, you see uh, correspondence between uh, the embassy in New Delhi and the State Department in D.C., uh, talking about how even though they're telling Mahalanobis that India can get a computer from them, donated by them, that costs a million dollars, that actually they, they should not give it to India because it would be used by Mahalanobis for communist purposes. And so you, you see, uh, and so I, so I was able to sort of try to recover some of these more structural aspects of the story. And I also, of course, try to end the chapter by looking at the competition that develops between uh, two visions of what this digital technology, these computers can be put towards. One, a vision of using uh, the computer towards crunching numbers that are coming out of the National Sample Survey in order to, for the purposes of development and planning. But the other, which is that uh, a, a sort of a, another project that is headed by Homi Baba, of course, uh, is the project of using the computer in order to work on India's sort of nascent nu- nuclear technology and capability. Mm-hmm. Wow, that that is such of interesting uh, outline. I was I was especially impressed by the references to figures such as Martin Nadler. Um, that, that almost read like you described it in your chapter, uh, like the Lekar kind of moment of uh, Indian computer history. Um, there is another aspect of the book that very much appealed to me as a historian of post-independent India. And this was uh, the creative utilization of a variety of sources, such as films and songs and plays. We don't typically associate with the statistically oriented planning commission. Uh, could you please tell us what strategies the planning commission employed to educate and publicize its work to the masses? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the the planning commission used a, a whole range of methods by which to to reach out the, to the masses. But also, I think it's important to understand why it was reaching out in the first place. After all, the planning commission is this unelected body of technocrats and experts. Why are they concerned about you know transmission of of, of ideology? Why are they concerned about reaching out to the citizenry? And I think it was important to them because it, it was important to the government of India. Uh, and what was important was the transmission of this idea of democratic planning. 
And democratic planning is a, is a phrase that I found the earliest reference to was in one of Nehru's handwritten notes from the National Planning Committee in 1939. And democratic planning was the idea that Indian planning was fundamentally different from communist planning, that democratic planning as manifested in India had to be based on persuasion and on consent, uh, and that Indian planning was offering a new path in the world, and a new path in this Cold War divided, post-World War II world in terms of both polity, but also in terms of uh, economic arrangements, that India could now be a beacon for what newly decolonizing nations could follow. And alongside this idea of, of democratic planning was another idea of planned consciousness. In some ways, planned consciousness was the measure of democratic planning. How do you how do you see whether democratic planning is successful in the country by checking to, to see what the levels of planned consciousness are, is amongst the citizenry? And of course, planned consciousness is a sort of ingenious uh, method or, or idea because unlike class consciousness, planned consciousness is something that brings people together, right? It does not horizontally uh, divide people, but instead everybody potentially, whether you're a mill owner or a mill worker, can have planned consciousness. And so I think that there's a mixture of idealism um, about democracy and popular participation, which many people in the government, including Nehru, shared. But there's also, you see a very marked realism about um, Indian state capacity. And I think that that gives a lot of the thrust behind this idea of democratic planning. The idea being that, yes, ideally we should have citizens participate in the plans and all of that. But the real reason we need to market this idea of democratic planning is because we just do not have the state capacity that the Soviet Union has, that other planned economies have. And so if it was not for citizens participating in an uncompensated manner, in the, in the five-year plans, if they were not investing in accordance with what the five-year plan suggests, if they were not being employed in the manner that, that the five-year plan suggests, that they would just be utter failures. Uh, and so you see that these, these phrases, democratic planning and, and planning consciousness, pop up in, in document after document and speech after speech in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, and so the government, in order to to affect this, in order to make this real, went to extraordinary lengths to, to publicize the plans. Um, the, I mean, the examples include there was a, a five-year plan publicity department within the Ministry of, uh, of Information and Broadcasting, uh, which lasted decades, and it, it's, sort of na- its name and nomenclature sort of changed uh, a little over time. But it had publicity officers in 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 you know dozens of districts across the across the country. In most states in India, there were publicity officers who were traveling. Uh, uh, in sort of for, for 20 days in a month, uh, traveling in bullock cart units, in jeep units, in boat car, in boat units, uh, and each of these units, whether in jeeps, bullock carts, or boats, would carry publicity materials, would carry film projectors that were sort of promoting the ideas and ideals of the five-year plan. There was something called the song and drama division, which was a division of you know which of which there were different wings in different parts of the country, and each song and drama division. Uh, the uh, had scripts that were sent from New Delhi that were approved in New Delhi of local language plays and songs that could be sung about the five-year plans. Uh, there was also something called the University Planning Forum, which is uh, which was sort of an idea of how to to well, some would say uh, teach, others would say indoctrinate the, the 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 country's youth into the ideas of the five-year plan by having them debate 
the ideas of, say, the second or the third five-year plan and the, and the policies of the five-year plans in colleges and then universities. And the ultimate idea was that eventually the, the best distilled wisdom from these debates would go up to the to Yojana Bhavan, to the planning commission itself, and that this would lead to a kind of feedback loop. Of course, this feedback loop never quite materialized, but that was the idea behind it. Uh, and so some of the sources, as you mentioned, I mean, I, I look at, I tried to expand my source base beyond just government documents to look at plays like Hamara Gaon, which was produced by, uh, which is written by, uh, you know, a three arts club, which is a sort of popular club um, uh, in, in New Delhi, and was then taken on by the Song and Drama Division. And then Hamara Gaon was, was translated into different languages and performed across India. Um, uh, novels like Juta Sach by Yashpal, one of the iconic sort of novels of the 1950s, a two-parter uh, in which one of the, the main protagonists and one of the few sort of good guys, as it were, in the movie is a person who is a member of the planning commission. Um, I look at movies like Nayador, which, you know, mainstream movies like Nayador with Dilip Kumar in it, um, movies like Chal Dil Chal Rahe, uh, uh, directed uh, by and written by K. Abbas, but starring big movie, you know, big box office draws like Meena Kumari, Raj Kapoor, Shami Kapoor. I look at songs like Kamyab Ham Kar Ke Rahenge, sung by Lata Mangeshkar and, and uh, Mohammed Rafi. You know, these are all, you know, mainstream singers, playback singers, mainstream actors. And the chorus of the song, uh, and you can imagine, um, you know, somebody young in the 1950s, perhaps humming this song as they are going to work. Um, the, this, this, the chorus goes, uh, again, the idea that as such a government-oriented message would be so mainstream uh, to me was quite surprising. I also look at, of course, all the films division documentaries on um, on subjects such as development and planning, and um, and of course we know that in the initial two or three decades after independence, up to almost forty percent of the output of the film's division had to do with development and or planning. Um, I look at, uh, you know, a documentary like Shadows and Substance, which is a, a um, you know, an animated movie that came out in 1966, which is about a, an extraterrestrial or an alien that comes and visits India every five years. And of course, the every five years is timed to coincide with the completion and the beginning of a new five-year plan. And while the villager in the movie uh, keeps looking, you know, breaks the fourth wall and looks at the audience and says, do you see any difference in my life? And of course, as a viewer, you're, you're, you're likely to say no. But through the eyes of the alien who visits every five years, you see how actually there are dramatic changes happening in India from the first five-year plan to the second five-year plan and then the third five-year plan. Um, so, think, so, so, so those are, uh, that's, I mean, I hope that gives you some sense of the, the kinds of sources that I, I tried to, to look up. Mm-hmm. No, that's fantastic, Nikhil. I, I am recalling uh, reading a novel by Rahi Masum Raza, Adha Gaon, uh, in Hindi, um, which is kind of like a throwback on the planning era, like it's looking at 1950s and 60s uh, village in UP. And um, it's a very interesting take on the time period you're talking about. Um yeah, so I'm also curious about some of the unanticipated histories of the planning ideology in India. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about one surprising or fun fact you discovered in the course of your research? Yeah, I, I, I certainly did not expect to be writing about sadhus. 
uh, right? Uh, I mean, the but I ended up writing, uh, you know, much of one chapter is about this organization called the Bharat Sadhu Samaj. Uh, and it's an organization that when I came across, I, I really, I had to sort of do a double take to make sure that I was reading the right thing in a document about planning. Uh, the Bharat Sadhu Samaj was a organization that was established, or I mean, Bharat Sadhu Samaj, for those of you, who, uh, for those listeners who might not follow Hindi, is the sort of Indian Society of Ascetics, of Indian Society of Hindu Ascetics, right? Um, it was an organization established in early 1956 after this very curious meeting between Congress politicians and sadhus at Birla Mandir in Delhi. And despite uh, Nehru's deep ambivalence about this venture of trying to put together five-year plans and sadhus, it was enthusiastically promoted by much more God-fearing national figures like the President of India at the time, Rajendra Prasad, and the Minister for Planning and future two-term uh, uh, interim Prime Minister, Gulzar Lalanda. And, and the this Bharat Sadhu Samaj was instituted on the belief shared by both these Congress members and the Hindu ascetics that these holy men could help popularize the five-year plans amongst you know, India's devout Hindus, the millions of, hundreds of millions of, uh, of, of devout Hindus. And the, the view was that it wasn't enough to propagate the idea of democratic planning and to spread the gospel of, of the Panchvarsha Yojana uh, just through, you know, uh, you know, elites, that it wasn't reaching the average Indian and the way to reach out to the average Indian, to the perhaps illiterate Indian was by, by conveying the five-year plan in the robes of um, uh, of the sort of Hindu monk, uh, in the language and idioms of uh, Hindu epics and mythology and, and, and religious discourse. And so the, the Bharat Sadhu Samaj was told to try to, to incorporate the five-year plan into the stories of the Mahabharata or the Ramayana, and that's what it did. Um, and as, as Gurzalal Nanda, its sort of primary patron within the government, and then the Minister for Planning in India said that the role of the Bharat Sadhu Samaj was to link the Lok to the Parlok, right? This worldly to the other worldly. Um, but as I would, I also uh, point out in the book, the, the apart from this, the deep, this, the the amazing irony of the people who are who are meant to have who are meant to have renounced the material world, taking up this very material cause. Um, apart from the irony of that, it, it also points to some of the more troubling aspects of uh, Indian politics, uh, both then and now, which is the role of religion, especially Hinduism and Hindu nationalism in our politics. And the Congress government, for example, would find that that this pandering to, to Hindu sentiment uh, would ultimately play into the hands of its political rivals. Right? Not only was it injurious, perhaps, to, to you know, to what people thought of as the state's commitment to secularism, it was also just injurious to its own electoral prospects over time because eventually this kind of discourse would play into the hands of its rivals, which is the Jansang and eventually the, B, uh, the BJP. Uh, the sadhus in this Samaj would prove very hard to control. It would drag the party, the, the Congress party, into arenas where its secular commitments were, you know, continued to be threatened and uh, where its competitors like the Jansang and the BJP were bound to succeed. So, for example, in 1966, there is this um, there's this major anti-cow slaughter uh, march in Delhi, uh, in which many sadhus participated, including sadhus from the Bharat Sadhu Samaj. 
And this leads to several deaths in New Delhi. It leads to vandalism across lots of central Delhi. The army is called onto the streets uh, for the first time after partition. And the violence is such that the then, minister, the then home minister of India is Gulzar Lalanda, and he is forced to resign by Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. And the reason he's forced to resign is not just because of the fact that as, as, the, as the home minister, he's in charge of law and order, uh, and this is obviously a breakdown of law and order, but also because Nanda was seen as being a long-term, decade-long patron of these very sadhus. Uh, I, I also found that th- that another way in which this would come to blow up in the face of the Congress Party was that one of the the people who was present at Birla Mandira, that very first meeting of the Bharat Sadhu Samaj, somebody who became the founding president of the Bharat Sadhu Samaj, a man named Tukuroji Maharaj, became in 1964 one of the founding vice presidents of the VHP when it was formed, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad. And of course, by the 1980s, the meetings of the Bharat Sadhu Samaj and the meetings of the Vishwa Hindu Parishad uh, at the Pandals, at the Kummela uh, in the 1980s were virtually indistinguishable. Um, they were the same sort of talking points were being spoken about in, in, in each of them. And one of the talking points, of course, uh, by the 1980s is how uh, there used to be a temple where the Babri Masjid now stands and how it needs to be brought down and a temple needs to be built there. And so you see how the history of planning links to something like like, like uh, religious nationalism and links to our very contemporary politics as well. Right. Yeah, this is a very nuanced and topical conversation. Um, before we let you go, Nikhil, uh, could you tell us about your future research plans? Sure. So, I mean, I, 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 this book just came out last year and I've, I've, I've uh, begun working, doing some research on my next project. And so it's, it is still very incipient and, and, and nascent stage. But broadly, what I want to do is to write a history of the independent Indian state's attempts at cultural diplomacy or soft power. Um, And so a history of, you know, the Indian state's aspirations for global relevance from uh, 1947 onwards, uh, especially at a time when India lacks money or might, right? India is not a rich country. India is not a militarily powerful country at this point. But yet India wants global relevance. It wants power globally. How is it that India tries to um, counteract this this lack of money or uh, uh, material or might? And so I I plan to look at this through a series of episodes. And so it's going to be an episodic history, I think. And uh, I think the episodes will involve, um, for example, India, uh, Nehru's elephant diplomacy or animal diplomacy in which India sent lots of baby elephants to, uh, to, in response to children's petitions across the world to zoos as a way of ginning up positive um, uh, uh, coverage in the media and the global media. I want to look at the establishment of the Indian Council for Cultural Relations under Maulana Azad, who is India's first minister of education. And the ICCR, of course, it, till today is the sort of institutional node for lots of India's um, cultural diplomacy and soft power attempts. I want to look at, perhaps in another chapter, the way in which India tries to send different dancers and musicians, whether Indrani Rahman uh, or um, uh, or Emir Subalakshmi or, uh, or Ravi Shankar. Uh, all of these people get branded as cultural ambassadors. And I found in the archives some, uh, some quite sort of revealing documents about how these uh, different dancers and musicians are also vying with each other and competing with each other to be recognized as official cultural ambassadors of India. 
and the ways in which it it differs from country to country or from uh, within the Cold War, you know, from whether it's in the uh, in the communist bloc or outside the communist bloc. Um, and of course, other themes will involve, you know, of course, I'd have to look at, uh, at, at the role of movies and Bollywood uh, coming to the 1980s and 90s at the, at the festivals of India. And then perhaps I might move towards uh, a discussion of what we're going through in the contemporary moment with um, the present government branding India, a Vishwaguru uh, with some a hardliner like Vivek Agnihotri being put on the governing council of the ICCR. And Indian High Commissions, for example, in the United States, where I am right now, having these Acharya envoys who are supposed to spread the message of India's Vedas and, and teach Sanskrit and yoga. So, um, yeah, so those are some of the, the broad themes. Uh, it's all very much up in the air. And hopefully I can find a way to tie them together uh, to make sense. Uh, thank you for that provocative introduction to your future work. Um, and I very much look forward to reading uh, your work when it is out. Um, thank you also so much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure engaging with you today. No, thank you so much, Anubhav. The pleasure was entirely mine.